0: Welcome to Not-So-Standard Deviations. This is episode 67, and I'm Roger Peng from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. In this episode, we're going to talk about Chapter 5 of Nigel Cross's book, Design Thinking. This is on our, part of our ongoing book club series, where we're going through uh, this book chapter by chapter, and we're going to talk about the idea of protocol studies and how they might apply to studying data analysis. Um, plus, we have a, a bit of follow-up and, of course, more discussion of coffee um we have some can i do want to do the follow-up first sure so uh probably most shocking is the uh photo that was tweeted by justin elsass uh of a mclaren f1 in baltimore
1: i saw that yeah (laughs) Uh,
0: which was amazing and even more amazing though it was not the car itself, but the fact that there was like a dog sticking its head out the window.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. It's just like luckiest dog ever. I know,
0: right? <laughs>
1: and he doesn't care at all. That...
0: <laughs> so let me just add that. So Justin has actually, I I met him. He's a data scientist for the city of Baltimore. Oh, um, cool! And uh, he was very kind to uh, invite me down to they. They have like a uh, innovation team down in City Hall. So, uh,
1: oh, nice. Visited for them. Did- you visited? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. What was it doing there? I like. I'm still in shock.
0: <laughs> I don't know. It's just driving around. I guess. You know. Sometimes you need to get from A to B.
1: Yeah. I wonder if there's more than seven. Like, because that's two sightings. I mean, I guess we have such a wide fan base that, you know, <laughs> I'm not surprised that we would see two of the seven. <laughs> Our
0: people are everywhere. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But. Um. Yeah. No. That was cool. Yeah. It made me. Want to see the one I saw again, but it's too late. Yeah. Um,
0: all right. Uh, we have uh, just one small piece of coffee follow up. Um, we we got quite a bit of we got quite a few suggestions for like espresso machines. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to add that uh, the one that I have is the Breville Dual Boiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've,
1: I've looked at that one.
0: Yes, it's a. Uh, so basically, I noticed that like in a, in the U.S. they tend to advertise them with the grinder built in yeah um and so but i have a grinder already so
1: i do too and so i've always been like no i want it separate plus it's like less to fix like you can fix the grinder like you can just take that in whereas i my um my friend who you know sandy griffith she um like she's a biostatistician at Flatiron, and um she had like a big espresso machine in Brooklyn and I remember it like broke and somehow she had to like go on the subway like way uptown to the Bronx or something with like this really heavy espresso machine (laughs) and so I remember her giving me the advice like think about how you will fix it before you like purchase one (laughs) like hers was some specialty one I can't remember but
0: I think that's like from all the research that I did like you just have to accept the fact that at some point like you're going to put a lot of money into this thing and at some point it's like something's not going to work and you're going to and you're going to want to be like in a relationship with a company that's like willing to fix it yeah
1: Yeah, like just take it in like get to know each other like don't go in when there's no problem
0: so my 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 thinking was that like breville seemed to have like a lot of good reviews in terms of service um and so even though it costs a little bit more i thought well when this thing but when, when some like hose fails in like a couple of years, uh, I won't have. Tr- they won't give me a hard time about fixing it. So,
1: is it like a car where you could get everything tuned up before it fails?
0: <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I mean, you do. There is quite a bit of maintenance that you have to do, um, which I'm not necessarily like perfect at. But
1: yeah. Anyway, see, this all just makes it sound unappealing. I,
0: I don't know. I think it's. I think it's worth it.
1: Yeah. I would love to be able to make like a nice latte at home. <laughs> yeah. I have a there's like um we have the it's I think it's Nespresso. I can't remember one of the like pod, but they're kind of like more like discs than pods okay but they um there's like a nice machine on one of our floors but it's not the floor i'm on (laughs) where you it has the milk frother and so i was like i should go up and like practice it and see if i feel like i can get to a point where it's like worth the investment (laughs) and then and then the other thing as we discussed last time is that the um it's not bad like the little pods
0: yeah, it's, no, the pots yeah. are good actually. I just um... they
1: are, yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Like, I just make right now. The reason I haven't explored the other floor, in addition to it being a flight up the stairs, is because like I have this little cup. It's like a really cute little clay handmade cup that I found in there's kind of like a common goodwill area in our building. <laughs> so I was like, oh, perfect a little espresso cup. <laughs> and so I'm like, I just make espresso, have it in there. I was like, this is kind of pleasant. So um i haven't gone the latte route yet is what i'm trying to say <laughs> i see okay but i should yeah.
0: yeah um okay i think that's it for coffee <laughs> uh, but is it, is it someone really I, I
1: saw another tweet of um people with the design thinking book um and like lattes
0: yes actually Gemma dawson Um uh,
1: i was very excited from
0: uh yeah. johannesburg tweeted a very oh. nice picture
1: oh nice wow yeah. that's awesome
0: I, I, I almost feel like that needs to be a segment now
1: <laughs> i know like design and coffee
0: i was like you know how the, the jerry seinfeld has that show like comedians and cars with coffee yeah I, I feel like there has to be like a like a di- data scientist with coffee and book club like <laughs> segment yeah. or something. i don't know
1: <laughs> i think we could do it we could like have guests on with their coffees we could take photos of us with the microphone and the coffee. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Interestingly, she tweeted the first photo of an ebook, actually version.
1: No, I think the first one, the one that was all white, Instagram worthy. Uh-huh. That was a that was like an iPad with a. Oh,
0: was it? Okay, I think yeah. I didn't actually see that photo. Maybe that was. About, oh, yeah.
1: okay. we missed out. Yeah. yeah.
0: Anyway, but thanks to Gemma up. Dawson.
1: We should definitely keep a compendium.
0: of Yeah. The,
1: yeah. Yeah. Like here's all the photos. I like it. <laughs>
0: and, and another thing that's becoming a, a segment, although it will eventually end, is the long-time listener segment.
1: I know. So, yeah, that's been really exciting. So
0: yeah, shout out to Jeffrey Thompson, Daley Michelson, and Mike K. Smith for uh, listening to every episode.
1: Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> We appreciate your perseverance.
0: <laughs> um, do you have any other follow-up?
1: No, I think that's that covered it.
0: I had just one bit of one little piece of news uh which is that i did this interview for this five books um website uh do you know about this no so it's a website they interview like famous people they, they interview famous people in me, basically um <laughs> about like five like five books that they would recommend for a given topic like a topic of their expertise yeah so for example they they interviewed hadley wickham for like five computer science books mm-hmm. um uh, and so they interviewed me for, uh, and basically the idea is that you name five books, and, you, and then they have they have a discussion about it, and they they kind of write up the discussion. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they asked me for five data science books, and so my uh, interview just went up on Monday. So,
1: cool. Did you include any design thinking books?
0: You know, I did. I included the book we're talking about.
1: Oh, excellent! Yes. Yay. <laughs> yeah, A Little cross promotion that makes there. me feel like I've positively influenced you.
0: Like... <laughs>
1: I'm changing the Roger Paying brand <laughs> outward facing brand
0: <laughs> How much do I owe you as a consultant? Uh...
1: I mean, yeah, like 50% of the royalties from this <laughs> blog post, obviously. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um yeah, I think you know, it's funny because like I feel like I don't know what they're expecting from me. Mm-hmm. Um but part of me feels like they may have been expecting more like I don't know, like I was thinking like, you know, like using R for data science or like, you know, more kind of, and I kind of, the books that I chose were like slightly higher level, I would say.
1: Yeah. Like they
0: were not like there was no software or coding or anything.
1: I'm sure. Yeah. It's like, I remember when I first joined multi, first joined Stitch Fix, we had a multi threaded blog post about like, what are your data science books? And like all of them were like, it was, like, as if, you know, people are choosing, like, the most advanced book they would read. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But I think mine were, like, gender ones or, like, you know, just, like, stuff that was, like, totally not related. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I think but. they might have had the same feeling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they yeah, they're,
1: like, cool, Hillary. That's so kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I did
0: get Daniela Witten's uh, introduction to data, or what was it called? Introduction to statistical learning.
1: Yeah, that's a there. great book.
0: So yeah, anyway, you know, for the people. There's who
1: several won. authors, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, I don't know. Who, I forgot who the other people are, though.
1: <laughs> I think one of them is like Tip Chirani. Or, or like, yeah, I yeah. think Tip
0: Chirani and Hasty and uh, Gareth James. Um,
1: oh, okay, there yeah. you
0: go. Anyway, um,
1: we we actually went through that book a bit at Etsy with a group of analysts, and I thought it was really effective. Yeah. Yeah. Like like they do some interesting stuff where you don't learn about. Um, I think you don't learn about confidence intervals right away. And they're kind of just like, take this number and multiply it by two and we'll talk about it later (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) to do the like 1.96. Right. Like, yeah. And so I thought that was a good approach. Like it's so pedantic to get into the whole sampling distribution thing. Yeah. Early. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Inference is usually where everything kind of breaks down. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's, I, I, I remember I saw a really good talk. Gosh, I, I think it was at, man, I can't remember what conference it was at. Oh, you know what? It was at Day to Day Texas, I think. Um, and Albert Kim, um, who's at Smith College, um, he was talking about teaching, kind of like, it was like tips and tricks from like someone who really had focused on pedagogy for intro statistics. And he basically was like, you have to teach the sampling distribution like with simulation and you have to start with like physical like taking the means and doing it over and over again like and I thought like so like literally the M&M's thing where you like take a sample and you like count the blues and then you put it back and then you take a different sample and count the blues and put it back because like it it just he was like you have to like you have to like feel it and like talking about it as you know oh you take the mean of means and then that's totally intuitive is is hard um and by like doing it yourself it he was like this is just the only way i've seen it like actually sink in um from the beginning which i think is a really good idea yeah um anyway
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, random
1: what? tip. Oh, actually, I had when you mentioned Hadley Wickham, it made me think of something that came up in the last few weeks, um, kind of like follow up, which is that he gave this talk. I can't even remember where, but um, I feel like he was almost riffing on this like design idea a bit, um, where he talked about how with um, analysis, it's like you're really like having a conversation with the data um versus with like programming with creating a package you're giving a set of instructions to someone Uh uh-huh and so he was like you know when you're doing data analysis like the data yells at you if something's wrong like you notice a problem whereas when you have a package like the people yell at you (laughs) right because like they're the ones that see the problem um and so I thought that was a really good dis- like way of summarizing it. As like, are you doing a conversation? Or are you writing a really detailed set of instructions? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And he was talking about, like, he recommended... I think he called it the design of everyday functions. Um, oh, the, like. the name of the
0: talk? hmm Yeah.
1: Yeah. So... I thought that was cool. He was at the talk that I gave in um, Kyoto.
0: Okay. Yeah. So yeah.
1: yeah, I think he, and it's like actually thinking about him as someone generally interested in design, which I think I knew to some degree, but I think this talk made me realize, you know, he's someone who has read the design of everyday things and seems to be a little bit of a design junkie. And so he was kind of like, he was like, I don't know if I totally recommend getting into design. Cause it's kind of like getting into wine, where you don't necessarily like enjoy wine anymore but you like <laughs> yeah w- like get more disgusted by bad wine
0: <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah i guess that could be true about anything
1: um, yeah well no some things that's i don't know i don't know about that <laughs> like some things you probably like actually enjoy more i cuz like good design you just kind of experience it and you're like that was nice like you, i don't know like
0: although i think things that you enjoy more when you know more about them uh-huh are like you know those i don't know they they those things are weird too you know like uh. yeah
1: yeah <laughs> i guess you're right everything's weird <laughs> like there
0: like there are certain sports that i think that like you only really enjoy when you know a lot about them um and i think like baseball is one of them uh, yes and like cricket is definitely one of them i think um yeah. but like other sports you just watch it and it's like it's fun you know and you do if you don't, even if you don't know the rules it's like it still looks fun you know
1: yeah that's what i i personally i feel like football is like that like it's not especially fun unless you know the rules
0: yeah i think like yeah because it's like i think any sport that where there's a lot of like there's a lot of stuff that's like not happening
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? exactly like the downtime is high yeah
0: yes. that it's like oh okay you have to know like what's happening in between the action
1: yeah and i feel like with basketball i mean i've always, I played basketball when i was a kid like i was on teams, so maybe i'm not an objective observer but it seems like there's just so much action and the people move in ways that are like familiar right so you're like, oh, that was graceful. Or like, oh, like LeBron just seems to like mow everyone over. Right. And like, <laughs> there's, there's nothing, play.
0: like, there's nothing, there's no like, there's not necessarily like a subtle interpretation there that you missed. You know, it's like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Exactly. You can tell yeah. he's good and it's obvious <laughs> why.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk about this chapter?
0: Oh, actually, no, I had one more thing about uh, pie charts.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so what's what's I, on your mind? I've
0: been thinking about pie charts recently. Oh. Mm-hmm. Congratulations! <laughs> it's an achievement all by itself. So I have to say, I'm coming around on pie charts.
1: Yeah. Okay. I have opinions about this. Okay.
0: So I please it, go on. Anyway, part, this part of this comes from discussions on my other podcast about pie chart related things. But one of the things, so when you see people criticize pie charts, the the main criticism is that like, you know the 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 comparison that you have to make is a comparison of areas right yeah and so one substitute for that is or alternative to that is like a bar chart where you like you have a bar chart where you would normally have pie slices uh and therefore the comparison that you have to make is a comparison of lengths which is a lot easier um and i think that's that's a valid argument but um but one thing that i think the bar chart doesn't communicate is that the pie chart is indicating like a composition of a whole Right. Yeah. And the bar chart doesn't communicate that at all. So, like in a bar chart, it's not obvious that like if one bar goes down, then the others should go up, or or some combination of the others should go up. Right.
1: That's a good point. Yeah.
0: Um. And uh. And so I I so but I feel like the pie chart very clearly communicates that if you like make one pie bigger, then the other ones have to get or or at least one other one has to get smaller. Right. Um. And uh. And so depending on the application, I feel like um. I I I don't know. Part of it feels like. I feel like there's a general wisdom in the data science community community that pie charts are universally bad. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I just feel like the idea of like a composition is not well communic is, is, is arguably well communicated with a pie chart as opposed to like a bar chart. Yeah. I don't know.
1: But okay. Because a pie chart's always, yeah, it's like divided by some number to get a percentage With a bar chart, I imagine that what you do is you would just, like, do the numerators for the lengths.
0: Uh, you could do, yeah, or you could do either one, right? I mean...
1: Yeah, but if you did the numerators, then it wouldn't be this, like, inverse relationship where if one gets bigger, the other gets smaller. That's
0: true, but then you're not actually showing the same thing, right?
1: Right, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's a good point. Like, I think it's totally valid... The opinion I had was actually pretty not pretty different, somewhat different. Okay. Which was that I think pie charts for binary things is like completely appropriate.
0: So when you say when you say like a, like a pie chart with two slices, is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, because then it's just like you can really quickly see which one's greater than fifty percent or like which one's dominant.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: And so yeah, and now that I think about it, even like three probably like yes, no, maybe. um... I'm cool with that too.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I-, I was not expecting that.
1: You know, and now that I think about it, I was just thinking about this graph I saw at work. I think what is, I think you're right that the composition thing's important because sometimes when they're not, like, I was thinking about a bar chart recently that I've been using in presentations that like someone else made and it does rank things by percentage and the things, but the things aren't mutually exclusive. So on one side, there's like, a pie chart of like you know forced choice like which of these is the most important reason most important thing you want versus the other one was like which of all these things like would you consider you know important for this decision mm-hmm. and um for the second line it it always does kind of throw me seeing the percentages and then i always have to like remind myself like this isn't mutually exclusive so yeah i I think what i'm saying is that i think you're right that a pie chart like really quickly communicates like these are mutually exclusive things that are all the options
0: right i mean i think a problem you know the problem quickly arises when like if let's suppose like you like i so i for a very brief period of time i did some time tracking um and uh and so i you know you can make like a pie chart of like here's where you spend your time right um which seems logical because if you spend more time doing one thing you obviously spending less time doing another thing um but um but it does become complicated because if you're like okay well how much what do i spend most of my time but then you have to like sort right uh all the percentages and that's not easy to do in a pie chart right that's where a bar chart really excels um i think so it's not like (laughs) i'm not like i haven't got complete 180 on this i'm just saying that like depending on what concept you're trying to communicate i feel like the pie chart does do one thing well but
1: yeah i mean i don't see any problem with having both like a pie chart and then a list of like numeric percentages on the other side
0: uh well okay
1: like a rank list yeah ones for like the visual impact of like oh yeah all these together form something that's about this other one about the same size as this other one.
0: I think I'm with you on that, but I think we may hear about that.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. No, for sure. But I agree, maybe it's like maybe the reason why people um get mad about it is like it's like a little bit too scientific and simplistic and not accounting for like psychology that people Yeah. Like like people's understanding of what a circle means is like so deeply embedded (laughs) right yeah also people's understanding of a pie chart is so deeply embedded (laughs) that's true yeah (laughs) everyone learns it really young and so it's like okay but given that condition it still is an effective form of communication just because like
0: everyone knows it the latest innovation though is the donut chart though right
1: right which is the
0: the pie the, the pie chart with the center removed essentially um but I think that is interesting because it try it almost is like you're comparing distances around the circumference basically instead of comparing areas. But I don't know how easy that is to be honest. But
1: yeah, yeah. Now that you mention it, I'm like, eh. I don't know if that feels easier yeah. at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is that like literally, you have experience cutting up pies or pizzas. And so, like, you're actually pretty good at calibrating. Like, hey, your slice is way bigger than mine. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> that that experience goes way back too.
1: I know, I know. It's like <laughs> it's like a, a survival instinct. <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: Yeah. So, like, versus, like, you you don't often cut up donuts. And when you do, it is harder to figure out which one's bigger. No,
0: I I never cut up donuts because that would imply that you're sharing it.
1: I know. At at Etsy, we did cut up a cronut once. and That was like a big, like someone like very generously shared a cronut. And so it was cut into pieces. Oh, I see. Yeah. But I was recalling that and trying to determine how big my slice was.
0: (laughs) Uh, All right. That's that's all I had for pie charts, sorry.
1: Yeah. No, I think you make a very compelling compelling case. I feel like some really good like UX research on this could like hit it home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I don't I don't want to hear about I don't want to hear about science. That'll just ruin my day.
1: Yeah, but it's not science. It's like design methodologies. Oh, okay. Qualitative research.
0: Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Um you want to move on to chapter 5?
1: yeah let's do it
0: okay yeah so uh we are continuing our discussion of design thinking by Nigel Cross and we are in chapter five right now and there are so including chapter five there's four more chapters uh, in the book and we will definitely complete it right
1: yes <laughs> okay absolutely no we're getting there <laughs> yeah we're
0: definitely getting there yeah.
1: um wait no inc- yeah including chapters so if you're if you're up to date then you only have three chapters left that's right yeah.
0: So chapter five was actually pretty short. Um, it was a single a case study again of this guy Victor Scheinman, is his name.
1: Yeah, it was well. It was slightly different than a case study because it's like it was like a protocol study. Yes, yeah, so
0: it was a protocol study um, where. If it, so if the basic idea is that, he, that this guy Victor was given a brief, a design brief for like a bicycle rack type thing, and uh, he was asked to spend. I think it was like. Two hours or something like that, designing uh, something based on the brief, and but the key thing was that he had to kind of talk out loud while he was thinking and doing the doing the work, and they I think I think they recorded it right or something like that. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah they definitely recorded it, um, and I think they also like requested him to verbalize things a little more frequently
0: right um, obviously he probably wouldn't talk at all if he was just sitting there by himself so <laughs>
1: yeah yeah no and i thought it was i really liked the intro to this protocol because uh, nigel cross talked a lot about like how people cannot really verbalize what's actually going on in their head like in any circumstance and also definitely in this circumstance so i enjoyed that yeah
0: and uh, And this is just to just to foreshadow next the next episode you know the, this is in contrast to, say, working on a team where um where you are forced to talk to other people on the team, so I think I think this chapter combined with the next chapter, I think will make for an interesting discussion.
1: Yes, yeah
0: um, but I, actually one one question I had for you is, what did you think of just this idea of a protocol study like the just the the setup? you know
1: I liked it, yeah, I thought it was a good. I mean, I think that like Nigel Cross did a really good job of being like, here's all the caveats, like, you know, one of his big theses that I don't think he's gotten to in this book, but we've talked about is that design is like fundamentally like, like a, a form of nonverbal rhetoric, um, and so, like he's he's talked a lot about how sketching is important, but in some of his other like more academic writing, he talks about it as like a distinct form of rhetoric that's different than like other types of rhetoric. Um, and so he um, he talks about that where he's like, yeah, I mean, talking out loud is number one, people usually don't know what's going on in their head and they'll just create some rationalization and like say it. (laughs) It's like when you ask them a question. Um, And then two, like you're talking about someone, interrupting someone constantly to have them verbalize what is fundamentally a nonverbal process. And so that might even like change the way they're doing it. Well, yeah, Um, there
0: seems to be like a a pretty high risk of like, you know, kind of like the Heisenberg uncertainty, you know, where you like intervene and then therefore change what's actually happening yeah
1: i mean this seems like the issue with all neuroscience research right uh what is oh like this sort of unreliability the fact that it's like a first person experiential thing that you can't observe that's fundamentally unobservable using scientific methods
0: well that the yeah and and that the act of measurement uh has the potential to change what you're observing yeah um I I I never cuz I was not familiar with like this idea of a protocol study um until I read about it here um and so I thought it was interesting and I kind of wondered whether it would be useful to study like data analysis um and uh I, I you know I'm not sure I think it would, I think you'd run into the same challenges right I mean I think um you would people don't normally like when people sit in front of a computer and analyze data they're not talking out loud normally right um and so it's um you know, I wonder, and even like if you like work in a team, so to speak, um, and maybe you could comment on this. Like, it's not like you are talking back and forth about analyzing the data. I mean, often you, like you go and take a look, and then you come back, and then you discuss it, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: no, yeah, it's like you're almost never like talking out loud about an analysis.
0: <laughs> I mean, unless you're doing some sort of like like a pair programming kind of thing yeah
1: Um, yeah good point yeah
0: but i don't know how common really that is not
1: common yeah yeah. well i mean so i noticed david robinson did like um a screencast of exploring a new data set yeah and i know some other folks have done that in the past of like trying to verbalize and um display i think you've done one right
0: yeah i've done a few yeah
1: yeah and so um so yeah that seems like as close as we can get in like a non-laboratory setting
0: right and i am saying say <laughs> yeah. so like uh, david robinson he just published one like recently and uh and you know it's like an hour and 20 minutes long or something like that it is, yeah, yeah. And, which yeah. is like that's i'm not criticizing i mean that's just the way it is but uh and so like when i did it i was like okay i'll try to you know screencast some uh analyses. Uh, what I what I realized, so I stopped doing this after a while because I, what I thought was that like, well, no one's gonna want to watch me do this for like an hour and a half, right? Um, so what I what I was gonna what I did was I edited the video, took and and I didn't I did not talk out loud, um, and basically added little like annotations like word annotations throughout the video saying here's what I was thinking basically at the time. Um, which was, like, extremely time-consuming to do. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it made the... I don't know. The videos are still kind of long, but I think it made it, I don't know, easier to follow. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it would have been simpler just, like, to have me talk out loud, but... Um, I'm
1: not sure, uh, yeah. Anyway. What are the view statistics on
0: the... Uh, I don't remember. They weren't great in the hundreds, but...
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, like, it's something that I think is really interesting and... I'm sure, like it's one of those things that yeah, most people aren't gonna like cozy up with like hot cocoa and like watch a screencast of <laughs> data analysis, but it it's like the type of thing that a few people will find extremely useful. Yeah.
0: Well, oh, so, you know, the, like, I've said the it, one advantage of not having me talk out loud in the video is that I could add a soundtrack.
1: Oh, <laughs> I like it.
0: So I thought, well, maybe if there's music playing, they'll like it'll be more, more palatable. Um,
1: did you add like the jeopardy music or
0: you know i actually wrote my own soundtrack really yes
1: (laughs) no wonder it was time consuming i think you might have gone above and beyond
0: (laughs) yeah but that part i didn't mind
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's so i didn't realize you were a composer
0: well you know it was (laughs) let's not let's not get too far out of uh i definitely
1: am gonna go watch it now (laughs) That's all good for you,
0: but uh, yeah, it was you. impossible. I, I, there was no way I could keep that up. So, but um. yeah. A, and also, did you
1: learn anything about yourself from doing that?
0: I can't say that I did. Part of the problem, I think, is that like I made, I, I had the idea to make those videos at a time when like I wasn't really analyzing any data.
1: <laughs>
0: so, like, and furthermore, like so you're
1: like, oh, all my packages, sorry, all my packages are like out of date. Like right. <laughs> I guess I have to like update those. Yeah, like and, half like... the
0: videos would be like updating r <laughs> right.
1: Yeah, and then like doing the help, like like what is it right.
0: that I did? Yeah, I
1: could see that being helpful if you were one of these people like. Like, um god what's the name of that guy who um wolfram who like he just had like some logger going on his computer like literally all the time so he logged every single thing he typed um and so he had like he has these graphs of like when he was active and working um over time and then you could it was it was crazy because you could see like a huge shift he was like this is when I finished my book and like life got easier and like (laughs) you can see he's like going to bed on time after that right right (laughs) but it's like if you had it running constantly in the background and so it really was like you weren't thinking about it when you were working um then I could see it being fairly interesting but at that point it's like it's, like, we need, like, our own Nigel Cross, who's, like, just studying the field, to, like, comb through that and talk it through and, like, do all the work necessary to understand what's going on, you know?
0: Well, I, I think, well, there's a question about like, whether you can actually get at what people are thinking in a passive manner, you know? Uh, like, even with a keylogger or, or, like, a something that recorded the screen of your computer all the time. Like, I, Like, would that even get at it? I don't know. I mean...
1: Oh, you would have to do like the interview, like what you were talking about. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So like get it so that you see some, especially effective data analysis, you know, like arise in the moment and then you're like, oh yeah, this thing happened. And then, um, let's go back and like analyze the tape and see what like exactly precipitated. And then, I mean, I have found that I usually remember my aha moments really well, um, Cause it's just like a, you know, it's like something that stands out in your memory. It's like a fun moment when you're like, Oh, it all came together. Um, right. Although I, there's some key ones that there's a big project I'm working on um, at work right now, which I so wish I could share. <laughs> but I definitely can't. Um, but like, I, I don't remember the exact aha moment for it. I remember the way I pitched it and I remember that meeting really well. Um, but I don't remember coming up with the idea exactly. Um. Right. Yeah.
0: Or, yeah. So so, uh, so the, uh, one question I had that was just related to that is like you know if you were to go back and like think about some big data analysis or data science project that you worked on and if I were to interview you about that project let's say like about like let's talk about what happened at the beginning all the way to the end like how much of that would you remember?
1: I don't I feel like I would remember a lot maybe that, I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, I think that I do usually have a pretty good memory of the narrative as it was developing in my head where I'll be like, oh, at first I was going after this and then I, you know, like, I remember exactly what happened with that, like, Hillary the Poison name analysis. Like, I even remember the plots I looked at, like, and, like, when I went to sleep <laughs> and then woke up and kept working on it. Right, you know, it's yeah. like, because I had this moment, like, where I got these really bizarre results and I remember feeling really sad I was like oh my god I've been telling myself a lie and then I went to bed and like woke up and then like looked at more and then it kind of revealed like like oh wait these are not like these aren't invalidating they're just like very different than I thought they were um so yeah I don't know I think but that was, like, a really big analysis for me personally. So for more minor analyses, I don't necessarily... I mean, not every analysis really has an... Ah- you know what? I take that back. I was going to say that not everyone has an aha moment. But I feel like they actually all do. Where you, like... It might not be, like, a profound, like, oh, I thought of a new design thing. But there's kind of that moment when you're like, okay, I got it. Like,
0: Yeah, like like, this is it. Like, this is yeah. what it's going to be.
1: Yeah, like, this is the answer... Now I just need to do all the annoying work to get it written up and, like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> do the other perfunctory analyses that I know other people are going to ask for. You know, it's not necessary.
0: <laughs> I think perfunctory analyses that that you know other people are going to ask for, that's like a, that should be like a theorem. That's like a theorem of data analysis.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, we should really, if I, if I were, like, being better, I would frame it in a more positive light where it's, like, you know like like you care about what the other person like you care about the other person understanding and so you're excited to do it you know
0: i think well some of them. it you could say is like sensitivity analysis and some of it you could say is like analysis from a different perspective i guess or yeah. something like that i don't know yeah
1: yeah i think you're right there's kind of like the analysis you do to convince yourself and then there's the analysis you do to convince others and hopefully you're in a good enough place with that person where you feel positive doing it
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: and also in a good enough place with yourself you know yeah like, not mad at them for you know being who they are yeah. Like, yeah they're just being themselves needing what they need yeah so I get it um yeah but back to the chapter <laughs> yeah
0: well i I kind of wanted to get it I I, I, think, I thought for me the most interesting thing that the chapter question that the chapster raised was like how do you study the process and what what would be a good way to study something like data analysis and how it's done um because um i don't know like i think the protocol study is one possibility and i think like he describes it's not like it's ideal or anything um but it's i don't think we I, i can't think of a situation where that where that's been done in data analysis at least I, I don't remember reading anything like that
1: no definitely not i mean we would need someone i think there are a few people who study the like how people work for scientists generally i don't know if they do it for data scientists or for like statisticians data analysts yeah directly yeah um because yeah it is a lot of like pretty annoying work <laughs> annoying maybe isn't the right I mean, oh my gosh! Like I'm sure protocol studies in the human, like this, like you know, humanities or like psychology or whatever are like can be ni- mind numbing to put on, and it's like each data point so expensive. <laughs> 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 and so I totally, like, have respect for people who are passionate about that work. I think I'm just so not one of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think you have to set it up. Like, like the, this chapter sets it up so that it only takes, like, an hour or two, right? Like, you have to come up with some fake problem that is fake enough to be short, but not fake enough to be, like, unrealistic. Um, so, and I don't know, like, I don't know how you'd necessarily do that in data analysis. But, um, uh, you know, it's like, you know, you have to kind of build a simulation, basically. Um, and then let them play it out, uh, while talking out loud. Um, you know,
1: ironically, the one place where this actually does happen now that I think about it is, um, interviews, job interviews.
0: Oh, you like for like data science positions?
1: Yeah. Like they ask you to solve a problem and talk it through. Um, but like that, we'll never get that data. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well okay and like i don't don't know how companies collect that data uh but surely like companies like google and facebook have a ton of it
1: yeah yeah i think somewhere like google and facebook would probably have it formally like they probably have a fairly consistent procedure that they put people through um and they probably you know have a way of recording it and saying okay like you know being very objective about it like quote-unquote objective um obviously there's tons of you know, not that it's not biased sampling, but regardless. Um, but like I don't think your average tech company is gonna have nearly that much process around their interviews. Um I know Stitch Fix doesn't, so it's kind of like the person in the room either like is impressed with their thought process or not, and then they're kind of just like, Yeah, I didn't love how he thought through that. Like we're gonna say no. <laughs> and so
0: It would be inter- Well, I think there's well, there's one issue, like, you know, I think companies like that they are if to the extent that they collect data like this you know they their goal is to predict you know whether or not they should well to predict basically success if they hire this person or or not right well i mean if they don't then maybe they they, they don't follow up probably but um the point is that like if there's you know there may be useful information in that data to kind of like learn about how people analyze data but there may not be useful information in that data to understand how whether someone is going to be successful at google you know what i mean like it's like it may not be predictive but it may be quite descriptive
1: yeah no i think it's um i think you're right like yeah certainly the people doing the interviews have no interest in like being like by the way we've noticed these trends in process and now we're going to like publish a paper on how people work like (laughs) right yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) it's also kind of a classic case of like um, is the data useful or is it easy to collect?
0: <laughs> like, yeah, well, yeah, there's, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, this one's easy to collect and, you know, definitely not someone's natural habitat for doing data analysis.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, there's also, like, there's an element of, like, is the, does the data predict the outcome or does, or, and is the data, does the data have a lot of variation? Because sometimes, like, there could be a huge amount of variation in the candidates, uh, which would be interesting in its own right, but if it's not predictive, then nobody cares, right? So, um so, anyways, this is different questions that you can ask. That's all. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good. Yeah, yeah. I I wonder somewhere like Google will have done research on which questions are predictive of outcome for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think they, they even. Uh, well, not about this was wasn't not about data science per se, but I think the their previous HR person was Laszlo uh, Bach, I think, like wrote. A, a, an article about how they did collect a ton of data in the interview process and uh i think i think if i recall correctly the articles that i how it didn't really predict <laughs> actually, oh, really? yeah
1: yeah they're like sorry we tried it doesn't work
0: <laughs> yeah or a lot or like a lot of it wasn't that useful i'll have to dig around for that i can't remember it was from a long time ago cuz i don't even think he's at google anymore but yeah um,
1: google i think google and i think they were the ones that started this sort of revolution in hr analytics um they call them like people analytics where it's essentially analyzing like the workforce themselves, um, and so questions like this would definitely be, you know, or like retention, looking at people's like quote unquote survival rates at the company, <laughs> like, right? Ugh. Yeah, doing all sorts of stuff with that, but um,
0: I mean, I think I think studying the way that people analyze data, uh, it would be challenging because I think even if you could find a way to collect the data, I think you know it's like whether. People will naturally want to know whether it predicts certain things. But I think um, whether the usefulness of the data will depend on, like, your definition of, of success. Um, and that's going to be kind of all over the map, I think. Or so um, so I think depending on – so I, it, it, I think – I can't think right now of a way that you could collect data like that and then make some sort of universal proclamation.
1: That's a good point. Like, I mean, I was just kind of thinking in my head. It's like, well, could you – figure out people who I mean I was thinking more of like data product design really where it's like oh you came up with this like recommender system that revolutionized the company or you know whatever happened but even then like you know that's usually like going through several it's usually like the idea doesn't usually come from one person alone or if it does like the actual implementation of it doesn't necessarily come from one person and there's not like the singular owner. It'd be hard to identify those people. Is what I'm well, saying. Well,
0: yeah, I think in a situation yeah. like that like you describe, there's going to be a team involved, and and you may be more. It might be more logical to study the team than the person. Yeah. Um. But so that's why. So the protocol studies are. You know, they're artificial because like you need to be able to kind of isolate certain things. Um. But the in reality, it may be that like the your ability to isolate like a specific aspect of data analysis uh, might not be that useful because in reality, you, this person's going to be integrated in a team and it's like, it's all going to be mixed together. Um, so there's a trade off. Now that there. I
1: think about it, I mean, talk about like design is not like, like the only ways that you validate that someone's a good designer is with like commercial success and with, like design awards like that one's just as much of like a community agreement that this person's good Uh uh-huh there's so I don't know how different it would be than just like yeah this person's good like (laughs) it's just like your whole credentialing it's like at the end of the day it's just a bunch of people in a room deciding something
0: yeah yeah uh, good point (laughs) yeah so it's turtles Um, all the way down it's turtles.
1: But yeah, I think I don't know. I wish I I think it would be a really if some if there's an academic listening who like wants to take this on is there. Like a budding academic who wants a really unique research area. This would be awesome.
0: I think it, the only I think the only challenge of do this is that I think it would be extremely expensive.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. But I mean, they like somehow the design thinking people got funding like
0: Yeah. I
1: I think it's, I think an academic could definitely tackle this problem and it might have to be at like one of these more progressive schools that like, I think, was it Berkeley that just introduced a master's of data science? That's like extremely, they have like a a very interesting curriculum with like a bunch of like humanities and other stuff. Um, Uh,
0: Yeah. I don't, I haven't heard.
1: I saw one tweet on this, so I probably should have looked into it more, but (laughs) we need replication before
0: we link to it
1: yeah I'll, I'll i'll dig it up but i think like one of the departments that has a really progressive view of data science would probably be really into this problem um yeah so well
0: yeah i, I would jump to that conclusion just yet but um, yeah
1: i mean you're the actual academic who's like had to get grant money and stuff So. <laughs>
0: well i just i base that hesitation on just knowing how academic institutions operate um and it's you know I think data science is one of these areas right now in academia where everyone's kind of got a slightly different vision of what it is and universities don't want universities don't like that and so they just kind of mash everyone together uh into like one program and the program is basically like take one course from seven departments you know and um so like anyway so that's my point is that it's like it's still early I think um and uh so i don't know if people are necessarily willing to, to to embrace like a different way of studying this process yet yeah
1: i wonder if a design school would pick it up like one of these places that studies design thinking um because yeah. like for example i did i mention this in the last podcast so at one of the um at one of like this um this conference i went to a few weeks ago in grand rapids called big Data Ignite. Um, which was super fun. I recommend it as a conference. Um, and there was someone there after I gave my talk who came up and she was like, oh yeah, I work with, um, this consulting firm, IDEO, like a design consulting firm. And she was like, yeah. So like, we, like we've organized such that data science is a design discipline. (laughs) And I was just like, what? (laughs) Like, that's amazing. (laughs) Um, and yeah, yeah, she was like, it's like her title was data science and designer or something um and so they like like were way ahead of the curve and obviously geniuses since they came up with our idea before us (laughs) Uh, yeah but they didn't have a podcast about it so yeah yeah they didn't all they could do is confuse their clients who are like what data science designer um but they, they had organized themselves like this way um and so in that paradigm you would of course study data science like design process in a like a design school so maybe there's legs there like however people get funding for design thinking type research it could be like data science thinking
0: yeah i i I think the problem right now is that the intersection of the two worlds is small right Um, and so one
1: consulting firm and this podcast basically
0: right and the consulting (laughs) firm probably doesn't have a ton of interest in doing pure academic research. I don't um, think so. Yeah. So but uh yeah. But no I IDEO is huge actually. And they and one of their co-founders, Tim Brown, has a nice book called Change by Design. Um, oh. and uh which I which I would I would for the most part recommend, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um well nice. But had I told that story before or no? No,
0: I know you hadn't yeah, I didn't know it.
1: Yeah. So I'll try to look into more details of that. She's actually in the Bay Area so I was gonna meet up with her as well. Yeah. So I was very excited, though. I was like, oh, wow. Validation. (laughs) (laughs) But and I mean, I can totally see why you would organize a company that way, because I mean, one of the other things I feel like is really strong evidence for this parallel is that data science teams are almost always like organized the same way a design team is in a company, or at least in the companies I've been in. Where you sort of have like this idea of like a VP of design or the head of design, but then they're like a horizontal team where people like are embedded in various other teams. And the level of embedding is essentially a judgment call of the company where it's either like they all sit together, but then they go to like the other team frequently or you have like a more deeply embedded where they all, they report in the design org, but otherwise they're like sitting with their engineering team and their product manager and stuff. But then it's the same with data science. It's like, yeah. Okay. So you have like, you know, the person in that direction who's like the, the data science manager. And then you have like the teams you work with. Um, unless you're like a data science, unless you're like abstracted away from that where you're like, building a machine learning system. And then there's some interference level between you and the actual like product team that's going to put it in front of people or in front of like into the application. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But
0: yeah, I think they both have this notion of like kind of degree of embedding. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. In various teams. Yeah.
1: Right. Whereas like another horizontal team, like finance or it or whatever, it's like, you don't usually see it people like embedded in, you know, a team they're supporting. Like, it's a little bit more um, – the horizontalness is a little bit more, like, clear and independent.
0: Yeah. I think that's probably more true for something like finance, you know. or Right. Where yeah. like, you, you never – I, I wouldn't imagine there's, like, finance people embedded in, the, in any of the other teams. Yeah. <laughs> no. Necessarily.
1: Yeah. And it's. I guess it's more like, are you a service org or are you, like, an independent org? And that's – I mean – If there ever was an organizing principle of the Stitch data science team, it's that Eric Colson, the chief algorithms officer, was extremely, extremely, like, adamant that we are not a service org. Um, Right. More so than even most, like, data data science shops, um, where we didn't, like, have... We didn't have, like, you know, quote-unquote BI people. Like, we didn't have people who were like directly full-time kind of like creating metrics for various business partners or maintaining tables that like at all. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah. So anyway, it's, uh, because of that though, then we have like a lot more of the like design freedom, I guess. I don't even know how to describe it, but we had a lot more autonomy in the projects we were doing, but then, also like by being not embedded and not support at all there was also a little bit less support for us in terms of like you know syncing up with a product team or like you know like most people weren't building their own user facing applications some people were which was awesome and like totally changed the business but most people weren't
0: (laughs) um one other thing that i just i just kind of extract out of this chapter which i kind of enjoyed it was like Um, The way that, you know, as he's kind of coming up with the solution to this problem, that like all the various requirements were kind of integrated together. Um, Like he didn't, like there were kind of, there were like different requirements that, you know, that the company needed for this thing. And uh, he didn't approach them like, okay, I need to do, it's like a checklist. Like I need to do this and then I need to meet that and then satisfy that and whatever. It was all like, they all kind of ran together. Um, And I think it might've been a coincidence that like they all kind of, ran together and like all the problems kind of solved themselves together but probably not like it seemed like an experienced designer knows that like okay well they're gonna need this like proprietary kind of look and so i'm gonna incorporate that into the structural thing and like uh like i think after you do that a number of times you know that this is this is how it's gonna happen you know
1: yeah yeah. Yeah, no, it was like there was um he I think he called it like proprietary feature or right, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah like and it was it was like this kind of triangular support. We never said the design task, which was creating a a, a place to put your backpack when you're mountain biking. Um and so it was like, yeah, our proprietary feature is gonna be this kind of like triangular, very stable holder for the like support system for the holder and um and it was like oh but that'll also be really visually unique and so that can you know you can like fancy it up and make it all like you know your signature thing
0: but then it's also very structurally sound and
1: right yeah um, so it's you know it's funny because i was just talking for my team about like our because we have so many data scientists we have like 120 and growing and so um you know at this point like there's are so many algorithm endpoints floating around that it's not always clear which team it's coming from. And then our team, the styling recommendations team, we have like, we have this like one-to-one partnership with what stylists are seeing. Like, you know, we have like our main thing, the match score, which is, you know, our main way of ranking items in, um, the interface that our stylists see that then like, you know, we like show them some subset of the inventory that's most highly ranked for that client. And then they choose from that subset to like what's going to be sent out. So there's like, there is like, a like, um, when something's in one of our algorithms, it has that extra property of being what the stylists are seeing. And so I was talking about how we kind of need like some sort of internal branding. It's like some sort of like, styling recommendations trademark (laughs) it's like this is like a styling recommendation stamp on this algorithm that says like yes you know that this algorithm will always be one-to-one with what's in the match score like it's just that's like what it is (laughs)
0: that's just like purely internal like the like the public never sees anything like that but yeah yeah but it's like if you
1: want to know like okay so for a client's like you know the size we understand for them like we have an algorithm for like learning the size over time from what you're buying and the feedback you're giving and all that and so it's like you know maybe a business partner wants to just know like what when people sign up what size are they saying they are versus like if they want to know our learn size then they you know if they if they want to know our learn size they probably want to know it because they want to know like the inventory we need to like sell to the clients we have (laughs) right and then they want to know like well they want to know what like we understand about them not necessarily like anyone like you know anyone can create like their understanding of size but only one is kind of getting in front of the stylist right right Um, so there's yeah there's kind of like some like internal branding so the point is like this kind of like signature thing can be helpful even for like data analyses or data products where it's like, yes, our signature feature is like this thing. And I don't know. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It does make sense. I never would have thought of it, but it does make sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I only, it's like the type of thing you start to think of when you have like an onslaught of like algorithms.
0: Yeah. Right. Like it wouldn't even come into play until you reached a point like this, like with, with a larger company and, uh, and in a large team.
1: I could see it coming to play like I know Hadley Wickham like because he's like a design nerd he like purchases like proprietary fonts for his presentations and stuff (laughs) Uh yeah and so it's like yeah it becomes like part of his personal brand like his slides are always the same and they always look really nice and they're kind of white with this like recognizable font so there is like a sense of like his signature like this is a Hadley Wickham presentation Um, you know
0: you want to know what my signature is what? Every every presentation is totally different.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my signature is like one of the defaults from like either keynote or, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll like cycle from one to another. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yeah,
0: yeah. um Although I do think it's funny because like you know because like on the, on occasion I have like gotten a, a bought a custom font, but then it's like I put it out there and they're like, oh, that's that font yeah it's like it's like okay well i guess it's not really proprietary anymore because everyone (laughs) knows what it is
1: (laughs) only like the design nerds know like surely not okay not everyone knows obviously but um it's um yeah i i just have like made peace with the fact that i don't think i'm ever gonna be someone who like spends a lot of time like designing my slides that's just not no
0: i i don't either it's just a
1: Yeah, I mean, I care about giving a good presentation, like, a lot, but that aspect of it doesn't speak to me at all, and I've also noticed that there's, like, this subset of data scientists who really care about it, and I'm just like, damn it, because they make it all, like, they make the bar so high. (laughs) 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 Like, Hadley, Karthik Ram is another I'm thinking of, like, it's, yeah, but... That's okay. But
0: I mean, okay. But just one more thing on the presentation. I think, like, you know, one part of the presentation is like the slides, but a big part is just a delivery, right? I mean, right, and, yeah. and the narrative, right? And so.
1: Yeah. You can have bad slides and give a good talk. Like it's totally true. I mean, I am not opposed to the idea of not having slides for a talk.
0: Ooh, revolutionary.
1: I know. Yeah. Ah. It's, they can be distracting, you know? It's like, yeah. you feel like you have to have your filler slide and like your funny photo and like. You
0: know, yeah, that's it's, right. Your animated GIF and uh, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. At some point, you'll have a joke and then you'll have like a GIF to go along with the
0: right, and then you have to like time it just right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so I can see that. But, um, what else was I think We have
0: we've yeah. gotten totally off the. I don't even know what we're talking about anymore. Um, I
1: know we are talking. Shoot, I had I totally have. Oh, well, this
0: came from the proprietary feature,
1: it's like the proprietary feature. The other place where I think that'd be interesting is like, um, if you like i think with publishing papers that would be another place where like your little proprietary feature like i think that does come into play where it's kind of like oh this is this person they always kind of like want to do this method or you know it can be a bad thing where you're it's like that person's totally like handcuffed to that method and never thinks outside the box
0: yeah it's uh it's not clear to me that it's it's a good thing (laughs) at least in, in papers
1: the feature could be something just like a visualization or like, even just like a way of um, like the, the way that you like the visual impact of your graphs, like the aesthetics of your graph. Right. Yeah. I think something like that is like, not a bad idea to be like, this is my like, you know, you can identify my paper by more than just the name on it. Like, right. I always have a quippy title or I always have like,
0: yeah, there actually there is one statistician who I think his proprietary feature is that he always has like a punny type of title. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I won't say who it is on the air, but
1: is it Brian Cafo?
0: It's not Brian Cafo. <laughs> yeah,
1: I could see it being Brian Cafo, but
0: no, I don't think he's I don't think he's ever done that actually.
1: Brian's so. Brian's proprietary feature is like having like a full studio like apartment set up in his office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not having like any semblance of work.
0: Yeah, he's done quite a bit of remodeling in there. Yeah, (laughs) I love it. Do do you have anything else on this uh, on this chapter? Any other nuggets that you extracted?
1: I I mean, I think that this chapter, in some ways, was the most relevant, even though it wasn't necessarily the most like like there wasn't a ton of new content. But I do think that the designing for to use or like designing for work um, is the most relevant to data science. Like I can't really think of many data science applications where it's not designing for use. And so I think like that being one of the first kind of like ordering principles, or I can't remember exactly what he called it, but it was like, that was one of the main things that like all, everything had to come from usability first. Um, and so I think, for data science, it like it always has to come from like truthiness or something, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Or if it is a data science product, then usability. Um, and so, I mean, I, I still, I, I, yeah, I, I feel like I want to drive home the idea that like for you know a quote unquote data science product, like an out al- like a recommender system or an algorithm that's going to get used either like public facing or internally facing, like. Those design principles are like super important, possibly the most important thing. Because um, if it seems like it solves the problem, then people will love it. But if it doesn't, then they'll probably, no matter how smart it is, they'll probably abandon it.
0: That's a that's a good lesson learned.
1: Yeah. So, design to use have that be the first priority. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Um, I think that's it for this time, right?
1: Cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We uh next time we'll do Hillary's habits.